Major support for Carolina Business Review provided by Colonial Life, providing benefits to employees to help them protect their family, their finances, and their futures. High Point University, the premier life skills university, focused on preparing students for the world as it is going to be. And Sonoco, a global manufacturer of consumer and industrial packaging products and provider of packaging services with more than 300 operations in 35 countries. What is air transportation like now? If you've been through an airport at all, you know it's different. It's busy, but it's different. I'm Chris William and welcome again to the most widely watched and longest running source of Carolina business policy and public affairs seen each week across North and South Carolina for more than 30 years. Thank you for supporting our dialogue. In a moment, we will bring together the four airport chiefs from Charlotte, Raleigh, Columbia, and Charleston, and we'll unpack what air travel and airports are now. Gratefully acknowledging support by Martin Marietta, a leading provider of natural resource-based building materials, providing the foundation upon which our communities improve and grow. Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, an independent licensee of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association. Visit us at SouthCarolinaBlues.com. The Duke Endowment, a private foundation enriching communities in the Carolinas through higher education, healthcare, rural churches, and children's services. On this edition of Carolina Business Review, Haley Gentry of the Charlotte Douglas International Airport and Michael Langut from the Raleigh-Durham International Airport. And welcome again to our program. We are honored to have both Michael and Haley from Raleigh and Charlotte airports joining us. An important program note. Uh, Columbia, South Carolina, and Charleston airport directors were also scheduled to be on this program, but last minute technical issues prohibited that. Uh, but Haley, Michael, welcome. Good to have you both. Haley, I'm, I'm going to start with you. This is an easy question, but I'm sure broad and deep. The idea of pandemic and COVID-19 has been a disruptor to say the least. But how has this seismic change shifted the culture and I don't mean just internally at the airport, Haley, but the, the idea of what an airport like Charlotte is, how has it shifted it? Wow, that is certainly a loaded question with so many tentacles that we could, um, we could talk about. I, I will tell you that um, the pandemic is probably the most life-changing event in the life cycle of this airport in many, uh, I mean, in any, um, time during our history. I've been here 30 years and we've survived a lot of different things, 9-11, various uh, aircraft incidents, the financial crisis of 2008, but nothing impacted the airport like the pandemic. It's impacted employees in their personal life, in their financial life, in their work life, their health life. Mm -hmm. It has um, touched every aspect of what we do here. The airlines have really gone through a tumultuous financial crisis. Um, they are starting to come out of that, thanks to the federal government and the funds that, that are available. But it has really required airports to pivot. We are great at having plans. We have master plans. We have development plans, financial plans. We're always forecasting, looking to the future. But we had to make a definite stop, and we had to pause 
We had to regroup, we had to pivot and make different decisions. Michael, same question, and, and to take it a little bit further than what Haley just referenced. So the airport, RDU in Charlotte, and other airports, of course, in many cases, are an agency or an extension of, of public governance agency. So you're at that place where it's, 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 it's almost private enterprise, private business, but yet you've got an overlord that is a city council or a county commission. So how do, you, how do you straddle that? And how do you be flexible enough, as Haley just talked about, how it's changed? You know, I'm, I'm going to go back to your question that kind of talked about cultural shift. Okay. And that cultural shift for me is really more of a labor shift. You know, typically as you kind of go into recessions, you know, starting to downsize and, you know, fewer people that are needed for your operation. You know, I, I think as we got into the pandemic, we kind of forecasted as we came out of it, labor was not going to be an issue that we're going to be faced with. That there was lots of people we thought were going to wind up losing their jobs. The economy was in kind of a rough, a rough condition. Didn't appear that was really true. It really came out of here pretty strong. And as we started to kind of go into the pandemic, a lot of our peers across the country wound up providing voluntary separations, so reducing overall headcount. Uh, we weren't effective in terms of doing that till we probably got to November of 2020, where we were still down 70% of where we were. It wasn't until we reached March of 2021 where we saw this huge surge of customers coming back through the front door because they had shots. And we started to look at staffing and our staffing went from 361 people down to about 290 people. And the recruitment process, while we thought there was lots of people out there, just was not there. There's critical areas out there, especially the vocational skill set, plumbers, electricians, firefighters, police officers. That pipeline that sits out there really is not there in the volumes that are actually needed. I actually talked to the president for the uh, North Carolina Community Colleges, and he actually indicated that in 2019, I think the labor force was short by about 400,000 people. That got worse. In North Carolina only? In North Carolina only. That got worse after the pandemic. So you've also got the silver tsunami. So that was a, a topic of conversation in 2019. Everybody said, all these baby boomers are gonna retire. I had 40 people that wound up retiring during the pandemic. I've got another 50 people that are eligible for retirement on a staff of about 300 that will retire in the next 24 to 36 months. So the labor has been the most shocking thing. I didn't predict it as I talked to some of my peers across the country. They didn't predict it. And I think all businesses are now scrambling to figure out, so what do we do? Money is not the only option here in terms of quality of life and working from home. All those things are new elements that we're having to deal with and staff a 24 seven operation. It's so, a so, I'm sorry, Michael. So Haley, to bring you into that part of the conversation, the idea that the culture's probably not an overreach to say that it, the, the DNA of the culture has changed, but, but it's driven by customers. It's driven by financing, of course, but it's driven by the customers or the people that are flying through the business and the, and the personal. How has the business personal changed and what do customers want now? Well, we certainly saw a change in the demographic of all of our, tra all of our travelers during this time period. Um, we've lost the business traveler. You know, business became via Skype or via Zoom sure. or via WebEx. It, it's taken a dramatic um, toll on what that passenger experience is when they come through the terminal and what the passenger is traveling for. Many first-time flyers that we've never seen before. They don't have the experience. They don't um, have the knowledge of being in the environment before. A lot of first-time education. We learned that um, in this environment where people were not 
spending as much time in public. Uh, we lost our whole entire breakfast segment. Everyone was eating before they came to the airport. You know, that used to be a big important component of our business. So our, our concessionaires had to pivot and start looking differently. Prepackaged snacks got really important. People didn't want to sit in a restaurant. They wanted to take their food, carry it on, take it with them, eat it in their seat. So we've learned a lot about the passenger during this time. I think the business traveler is still the wild card. We have many Fortune 500 companies in Charlotte. Some of them are starting to travel again. Most of them are saying they will look at that seriously after the new year. We are anticipating some travel from the business sector in January. But all of that is contingent on the current health environment as well. Yeah, sure. So I think that's a, going to be an ongoing wild card. I think the business traveler may not be the way it was in the past. We may only gain a percentage of that back because of the new technologies that are available. But Michael, uh, uh, places like VRBO talk about that is, as Haley just talked about the business traveler and how that shifted. And they've coined this term called work workcation and that, and I'm sure you probably heard some semblance of that, that people want to go somewhere now for 30 days and work. Does that, that doesn't seem like it's going to be enough to backfill what the business traveler was, but does it show up? I think we're starting to see that show up where people are, you know, having, or they want to live in different locations but yet the uh, company still requires them to show up at some point in time, like in New York, say, I want to live in Charleston. So I live in Charleston, but every three weeks, I've got to go to New York City to go to my job and just check in with the company. Companies are allowing that remote work, but they still want you to check in uh, with the company to make sure everybody's kind of in alignment from a cultural standpoint, from a business objective standpoint, all in alignment. I do want to add on also about this passenger experience. What was the passenger expecting? As, especially when we get a lot of these leisure customers. And I would say it's kind of two things for me. It's kind of frictionless and contactless. Contact means customers don't want to touch anything. If I don't have to touch anything through the process, I feel safer going through the facility, even though our facilities are very safe. So in our particular case, you know, online reservation system with the license plate recognition, which basically allows me to come up, not touch anything. We recognize the license plate. You've already paid for your parking and you can go into the parking spot. You're also looking at, you know, kind of kiosks. Uh, we're working on technology that instead of touching the kiosk, you can actually use your phone, uh, self-tagging of bags. Mm -hmm. And of course, from a concession standpoint, customers want it when they want it. And so we've introduced what we call a ghost kitchen concept. So this is kind of the back of the house, all the chefs with eight different uh, concepts. Five of those are going to be national. Three of those are going to be local. That you can literally, when you're standing in line, order your food. And instead of going in a sit-down restaurant, there's heated lockers or cool lockers that they can get the food. So you can rapidly get your food, go sit in the, in the um, gatehold room areas or walk on right on board your airplane. That's that frictionless experience that customers are expecting when they come to our facilities. I think that's a, I'm sorry. I think that's a, a, a great thing to point out. We have a, a similar parking program like Mike was talking about, and we have implemented that during this time period, and it has gone gangbusters. Uh, we were just starting with that project prior to the pandemic, but being able to book your parking in advance before you show up at the airport, pay for it, do everything online, I mean, you just can't can't beat that. And it's just been so embraced by the customers. So a lot of uh, the same things we're looking at in our environment. And I, I think they're becoming not only a passenger desire, it's becoming a passenger expectation. So so the good question would be, or I think would be, these are permanent changes. These aren't just a salve to, to uh, satisfy a COVID fear. 
Absolutely not. Um, you know, I think it meets that standard, but I also think it's engaging a passenger in a different way where we've not been able to do that as effectively before. We are, any opportunity we get to communicate with our passengers before they show up on the doorstep of the airport is a win for us. They come better prepared, they come better educated. They come with some expectation of what they're going to experience when they get in this environment and there are less surprises, which makes for a better experience for everyone. Uh, the things you're seeing in concessions with the automatic checkout, I don't see that ever changing. No. I think the passenger likes it. They don't need that experience when they're getting a, you know, a bottle of water or, or a, a, a soft drink. They're prepared to handle it on their own, much like you, you're buying your gas now. Yeah. Let me, let me add into that, you know, if you think about it, for 12 plus months, a lot of these customers were sitting at home. So what were they doing? They were using mobile technology to do just about everything. Grocery shop, I don't want to do that anymore. So I'm going to do it online and I'm going to get it delivered when I want it at the end of the day. So that expectation customers have about all other types of services, banking right now. I don't need to go to the bank. I can actually deposit my check on my phone. That experience needs to be translated into airports. And so airports like Charlotte, RU, are looking to figure out how we continue to evolve this technology to make it frictionless and contactless as possible. That's what the expectation of the customer is, because that's what they do in their real life outside of flying through airports. If you are just joining us, we are talking to airport directors from both Raleigh and Charlotte, and uh, there was a technical problem. We expected to have Columbia as well as Charleston joining us as well, but uh, due to last minute technical issues, they could not join us. So Haley, let me come back to you on something. As, and let's shift just a little bit. TSA reports this year that air rage and tensions, not surprising to anyone, have risen. Why do you think that is? Well, that's a, boy, that's a complicated question. There, there are many, How many factors. many do we have again? <laughs> yeah. um, I think for us in the Charlotte environment, it's been a combination of things. One, frustrations are high when you come to the airport anyway, on a good day. There are um, a lot of things that are out of the traveler's control. So a lot of times people have a high level of anxiety when things are going perfectly. You add into that an unseasoned traveler, and then you add into it a federal mask mandate that is um, something airports across the country are dealing with. And if you put on top of that, um, whatever the passenger may have taken before they came to help them relax, and they have a cocktail while they're here at the airport, and it it's, can be a recipe for disaster. I will tell you in Charlotte, we've been very aggressive in this um, area. We have met with our local police. We've met with our airlines. We've met with the local district attorney. We've had all of us in the same room talking about what protections are there for employees? How are our responses? What are we doing in our environment that support the people who are on the front lines and who may be experiencing this? There's also a national campaign with the FAA right now uh, I think Mike is probably showing these in his terminal as well. They're PSAs and reminders about passenger behavior. Um, but most of ours, quite honestly, have centered around masks and whether or not someone's going to wear them or, or not. Mm -hmm. Michael, what do you think? Yeah, I think you only have to look at the national news on a daily basis and see the divide in this country. Uh, you saw the election, there's a divide. There's a 50-50 split just about on every issue. Uh, you layer that in with just the travel experience that, you know, you got to go through TSA screening. 
and now federal mandates for wearing masks. All of that's kind of a perfect formula, but to putting that on board an airplane, that's challenging. Um, and so I think we're trying to educate and um, let our passengers know that type of conduct is, is not, not allowable. Uh, and I think the FAA is trying to ramp up uh, enforcement in their space as well with TSA. We're just not going to tolerate that. that. That should not be on board the airplane. Um, but it's challenging. It's very challenging. And I, and I think until we can work ourselves through, hopefully by encouraging people to get vaccinated, where we can all travel safely and don't have to wear face masks anymore, I think this is going to continue for a little while uh, as we move forward. You know, Haley, you said something. I want to come back as a one-off on this. I was uh, I heard Delta CEO maybe a couple of years ago now speaking to a small group of us. And, and he said something that was pretty surprising. He said that on any given airplane, he said in general, on any given flight, any given airplane, if you look around, 70% of those passengers, that will be the only flight that they have during that year. Now, I might be plus or minus there, but when, when you consider that, so I, I guess I'm asking you, that 70% or a majority of the passengers passing through the airport are infrequent flyers and don't have the experience. Is that what you were talking about, about the, the increased stress on those yes. that enter an airport? Yes, yes, exactly. Um, we have the same issue in our environment. And I think that um, any opportunity an airport can make to connect with that passenger mm -hmm. before they arrive is, is really important in today's world. It's not easy. You can't just show up to the airport and go get on your airplane. There are things you have to do. If you're traveling with children, if you're traveling with someone who is uh, in a wheelchair, those are all complications that, that can make that experience really troublesome for someone who's never been in our environment. Mm -hmm. We actually have a um, program we've just started here in Charlotte. It's called the Sunflower Program. And if our passengers will look, there are people throughout our environment, employees um, that are wearing lanyards that have sunflowers on them. It's targeted at people who need help with disabilities. It may be an unspoken disability. You may be traveling with someone who has autism, um, who you know, you're gonna go through the checkpoint and that's gonna be very alarming. Someone's gonna have to, to touch this person. They're gonna have to go through a screening device. These people, um, and we've just launched this, that are being trained on this, these people will help you. They have special training. They're in the airlines, they're in the food service, they're in the airport staff. I think this is a great way to try and help cope with that, that stress that we were talking about and that uneducated traveler. Michael, let me ask you a question and go in a little bit different direction. As, as you both have, have referred to the anxiety with travelers, approaching and going through TSA has been uh, legendary these last few years. Um, in RDU, let's use that as an example. Do we have now, when we talk about COVID or the consideration of a public health pandemic, um, do we have now a permanent protocol in place for health screening? In other words, are we now going to have health screening whenever you come into an airport like RDU? I don't know that we officially have a health protocol that's been established on a national basis. So the president just uh, authorized international travel. And of course, you have to be vaccinated, got to be tested inbound and outbound. So I think the federal government's trying to come up with what that standard's going to be. I think the default has been everybody wearing a mask. Uh, and if you kind of look at the history since we started in the pandemic to today, there's been very little transmission that's actually occurred as a result of onboard flying on board those airplanes or are actually in the airport itself. Typically what we see is when people leave the airport, they take their mask and I think they leave it on, leave it on the baggage carousel thinking that, 
well, I've traveled here safely, so the COVID didn't follow me to my destination. And that's typically where they wind up picking up the sickness. So process itself uh, right now, it's wearing masks and trying to encourage everybody to take vaccines. What does the future look like? You know, we've done some work with Duke University uh, and talked with them a little bit about what does the future of these pandemics look, look like? And they've kind of communicated to us that there will be another pandemic. It'll be different than this one. The real question is how quickly does it, does it hit us? Does it hit us in two months, two years, or 20 years? But at some point, we'll get another one of these that's going to show up. I think the thing that we have in place, though, is that you know wearing those masks has been extremely effective to then allow the development of some of these vaccines that, are, that have been very helpful, preventing people from actually going into the hospital. Uh, and so I think that protocol, plexiglass, social distancing, and the cleaning standards is probably how we'll pro probably treat the next you know, kind of a pandemic that shows up. But we don't have a health screening standard yet, but I think it could be something in the future that we potentially would need to develop. Is, is a quick follow up with that, Michael. Um, hospitals obviously were first movers on this for obvious reasons, and, and vaccinations were a condition of employment. Yes. Are airports like that, or will airports have to be like that? Yeah, so uh, that is an interesting conversation we're having right now. You know, there's the federal mandate out there for federal workers, but they also tie in federal contractors. Uh, we have contracts with the federal government, so we're clearly trying to understand, are we bound by that requirement or not? Uh, a lot of the industries, the airline industry, a lot of the airlines are, are mandating uh, those vaccines. I will tell you that is a challenging place to be uh, because again, if you look the uh, polarization of our, our entire country, you get a 50-50 blend, we think we might be at about 60% of the people have been vaccinated. And we start talking about a workforce where I'm down by about 60 people, losing anybody uh, could be extremely challenging to the point uh, you may not have enough staffing from a fire department to meet your index. Mm -hmm. you, you can't operate. So these are delicate issues that we're trying to think thoughtfully through. Uh, I know we've got a doctor coming from UNC uh, Health that is dealing with COVID and managing COVID for our community that's going to come and speak before our staff on Tuesday to continue to educate them on the value of vaccines. Uh, but I think this is we're learning along the way and, and trying to educate people of the value of the vaccine. Uh, Haley, we've, we've got about five minutes left. Let, let's unpack a little bit in this five minutes uh, transportation policy. Uh, Congress debates many things and certainly national transportation policy has been on the top five at least. Um, what are your hopes and what are your fears about what may come down the next few months around transportation policy for you? Well, I think we are all um, anxiously awaiting to see if the infrastructure bill is, is going to sink or swim. Um, you know, we're, we're told there will be some sort of infrastructure bill. Uh, there seems to be a sense of confidence about that, but what it provides for airports remains to be seen. The draft uh, legislation does have considerable funding. Um, it is really focused on infrastructure of terminal buildings and airfields. And I think uh, Mike and I can both speak to the fact that those are critical to our operations. We both have aggressive programs that are occurring in our environment and the opportunity to have federal support with that uh, would be helpful. I think for us, the timing, trying to understand it and trying to be sure that we have adequate time to respond is going to be very important. I know that we both spend a great deal of time um, engaging with our counterparts. I mean we talk every other week, all of the airports in this state, trying to understand the legislative environment and ensuring that we're working collectively in the best interest of our community. 
I think moving forward, those communications are going to get even more critical. I know that we're normally um, engaging our legislators, uh, state, federal, state and federal, um, and I think that's going to be really important as we move forward. It's a fast-changing landscape. Um, there is a lot of funding that is coming forward that is pushing for rail, so that's going to be interesting as we as we continue to develop airports. Does that and will that impact what the future of airports looks like? Um, but I, I, I think it's it's never going to not be a priority as long as we are both at growing airports. Okay, thank you, Michael. We have a minute left. Uh, can you, you'll wait in. On, are you optimistic about the transportation and funding around infrastructure? I am optimistic about this, and you know I think our trade groups, Airports Council International North America and the American Association of Airport Executives, they did a needs analysis. That need is $25 billion a year for commercial service airports. Right now, this infrastructure bill has got 25 billion, but it doesn't all go towards airports. Some of it's for terminal infrastructure, some of it's for uh, airfield type infrastructure, but some of it goes to pay for FAA programs. So we're getting about a fifth of what we need and they're gonna spread that over a five year period. There is a significant shortfall for infrastructure dollars that are needed to fund these commercial service airports in this country. Okay, all right. Michael, uh, Haley, thank you for joining us. Uh, best of luck and, and thanks for some of the insight on traveling through airports, uh, even seasoned travelers sometimes. Uh, I, I think to use this term, get a little uptight about getting in, in, in anxious in the airport and thank you for working hard to make it happen. Uh, also is, is a special program note, again, Elliot Summy and Mike Gula, or Gula from uh, Columbia, Elliot from Charleston, were not able to join us here at the last minute. So we did not have representation from our, our, our partners down in South Carolina. Uh, we apologize for that. We might be able to bring that to you at another time. Uh, thank you all. Thanks for watching our program. If you have any questions or comments or would like to watch past programs or this program again, you can go to carolinabusinessreview.org and make comments or watch programs. Until next week, safe travels, and thank you for your business, and thank you for watching. Good night. Major funding for Carolina Business Review provided by High Point University, Martin Marietta, Colonial Life, The Duke Endowment, Sonoco, Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, and by viewers like you. Thank you.